0: Welcome to the Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I have with me Rebecca Hoffman and Charlotte Hesby. Hello, ladies.
1: Hi. No.
0: Sounds like it's been a big week.
1: Oh, this week's been a beauty.
0: What has been your highlight?
1: Highlight. You go first, Beck.
2: Um, So my highlight of the week is actually probably my husband's highlight, but I think it will be for me. He has officially this week taken the jump into being a stay-at-home dad. So he will be a stay-at-home dad from Monday, um, looking after our three-year-old and our one-year-old full-time. Yeah. Which is very exciting. Very scary, but very exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And highlight for me, this week in my primary health network, we launched the health pathways for the southeast Sydney region of my footprint. So we have two footprints, um, Sydney local health district and the southeast Sydney local health district. And Sydney local health district has had health pathways for about five years and it's really been fantastic. And so it's been... A primary goal of mine, since we became a primary health network, to get Southeast Sydney into health pathways as well. And so it was just fabulous to be at the launch this week. Um, they launched with fifty pathways, and the GP leads were just so inspiring, and it was just so exciting. And um, yeah, so I was that was my highlight. Excellent.
0: So my highlight of this week was heading down to Canberra and going to the fellowship ceremony, which you were at as well, Charlotte. Yeah. It's always um, really nice to go and be reminded of what an achievement it is once you're fellowed and, you know, seeing everyone kind of putting on their gowns and getting their actual fellowship paperwork it's really, really cool, and the my 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 highlight of it was actually reading the oath of fellowship, and it, it's nice to be kind of be reminded what what we kind of say we're going to be doing in our clinical practice. So I thought that was really really nice kind of reminder for me.
1: Yeah, I I would. We'd um definitely reiterate that. I um I thought of that as last week because it was on a Saturday. All <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> we're not quite there yet. Though. When do you start your week from Monday? Yeah, I sort of started from Monday. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how you have a different definition of where your week starts, don't you?
0: I go like in the past week was from whenever you're talking about seven days before that.
1: Okay, well that's that's probably a better definition than me, but. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's only because I use calendars a lot, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, seven days in yep, advance. Yeah, indeed. So today we're um talking about quality in general practice. So this is a um an interesting topic for us to enter into. Do you want to give us a background of Charlotte, what your definition of quality is, and what it what it means to you?
1: Yeah, so I've been. Doing, um, been really interested in quality for some time, and so I'm always interested in what how people define it. But if you go to the World Health Organization of family doctors, Wonka, their definition in in the general practice setting is quality means the best outcomes possible, given available resources that are consistent with patient values and preferences. And I sort of resonate that because. I, I sort of think of, you know, what I'm wanting to do is the best I can, but it is definitely dependent on what we, we have and it needs to be around the patient. Um, and so that whole sort of concept of being patient-centred, I think, gets wrapped up quite nicely into that. Um, the Australian Commission of Safety and Quality in Healthcare um, defines it as the extent to which a healthcare service or product produces a desired outcome or outcomes, which is a lot drier. But again, I suppose succinctly gets to the point of saying that as a general practice, it's about saying how much, how how well do we actually achieve what we would say is the outcome for that particular medical condition. And so I think putting t- two, the two together for me works quite well. And if we sort of look at the quality f- Sort of thing uh, in general practice. It's uh, an increasing conversation, and we we're hearing this more and more because um, with our PIPS, our practice incentive payments, um, as of uh, well, they were supposed to be rolled out this this year in May, but next year in May we're going to be losing for the practice owners anyway the practice incentive payments that are around diabetes cervical screening and going to nursing homes and things. And they're instead wrapping it into this equality payment. And I think, therefore, it's really important that we start to have a really keen conversation and be engaged with, well, what does that mean and what does that mean for us in practice and how do we, do we already practice that? I mean, I would like to say that we already do, but is it measurable and, you know, are we, okay to stand up and say that we are indeed delivering quality care
0: so it sounds like we have two arms the what is the best outcome for the patient and then how do we measure what that outcome is and that you know that's kind of dependent on what what the patient's presenting with in terms of their illness and then how that defines what we do in our consulting rooms and how we measure the outcome of what we do in the, our consulting rooms
1: yeah yeah I mean I I certainly sort of the questions I ask is what what does in particular high quality look like in general practice can and, and can we measure it and does it actually does that measure link to improving clinical outcomes because I think sometimes you know measures that are we're told we can measure don't actually maybe have a link to improving outcomes. And then, you know, how does that link into what we're doing every day as a GP?
0: Which is where the controversy begins and where people start to get nervous about how what we do is then linked to practice incentive payments and financial viability. So do you want to give us a, a background of what your experience is in terms of what you see quality is and how that is different from perhaps what people might fear quality could be defined as?
1: Well, uh, well, I don't know. I think it's more about sort of raising the questions of, of what, what we need to stand up for. Um, I mean, I'll start with a little bit of research. So there's been t- sort of some research coming out of the United States about what quality looks like. And the first the sort of most commonly spoken about one is research from San Francisco led by a guy called Tom Bodenheimer. And the group there, what they did was they went and examined a large number of practices in their sort of uh, fairly large area of the United States that were deemed to be high performing primary care practices. Now, so they didn't actually say high quality but they called them high performing and they were looking at well what what are the sort of the key features of a high performing practice and does that then help you understand what might also to relate to quality and they came out with these 10 building blocks and so if anyone's interested it's worth googling um, the 10 building blocks of high performing primary care practices and Bodenheimer but but what's very interesting is that they sort of these four, what they call foundational blocks. So one is um, about having engaged leadership. The next one is about having doing data driven improvement. I think we're gonna have to stop because my husband's just got home. Sorry about that. We just, uh, I'll, I'm doing the ash thing now. I'll just go and let him know. He needs to be quiet. Okay. Uh, so the second. Uh, foundation of block is about data driv- driven improvement and this is where practices actually use the information that they've gotten from their patient records and the specific information about their pa- patient population to actually drive doing better and actually sort of d- around the systems that they ma- made developed the th- Third one is what they call empanelment. Now, we don't have empanelment in Australia at all. Empanelment sort of equates to what I call patient registration. So we've played with it a little bit. So the um, closing the gap scheme is certainly requires a patient to register um, with a practice, as did the diabetes program. But I'd say most people will recognise that, that, that a patient is that they own is someone who identifies them as their GP and would come to them preferentially above going anywhere else. And so I think we, we're we much more limited than, than practices where you do have this sort of more restrictive patient registration in terms of understanding our patients' needs, because they do go all over the place. But with that limitation, we still can work with having a patient population and then the fourth one is about actually operating practice that works as a team. So those four things are sort of seen as being the key things to being a high performing practice and I won't go on to the other ones because I'll go back at that point because Claire Jackson um, and her research team got a large amount of funding from the government to look at quality um, in in general practice setting and they have done a really nice lot of work and they sort of said, okay, well, what are the 10 elements of high-quality practice in the Australian setting and does that sort of align with those sorts of things that came out of um, the American research? And so it it pretty it, it ties in pretty well but it's, it's slightly different. So she starts off, well, they start off with being patient-centred they then bring in the leadership so that you need to sort of understand who is the leader in the practice and have some leadership driven. That you need a, the practice to actually have a strong focus on the staff, so that's about listening to them, empowering them, giving them a voice. Having systems of clinical governance, having teams, working really well with communication, having a sort of a an actual system of education and training, um, having a process for actually doing improvement work, um, measuring the results that you actually have, and finally actually having a system around information and IT. Now, it's really interesting because when you look at those 10 elements, they don't actually reflect back to what we were talking about, well, what is quality? But what they do say is that you need those things in order to achieve the quality so it's sort of I think sort of like that interesting balance it's saying if we want to be a practice that can deliver high quality care we need to go back and look at the way in which we function what is our sort of you know are we actually patient-centered Do we have a really good leadership? Are we, you know, listening to everybody? Do we run as teams? Do we actually educate and upskill everybody? And do we actively um, work at improving what we're doing? And I think that certainly for me uh, sits well with then understanding how we can use those concepts in terms of then going forward in designing the systems around being able to deliver quality care. Either of you have anything you want to ask at that point? No. Okay. So, to not sort of bore you with even more, the ten building blocks for from um, Bodenheimer's again were pretty similar to then that the the other ones, apart from those um, foundation ones, because again it was about patient team partnership, population health management, and again I think that's one of the things that for me was an aha moment. Because when I first really worked as a GP, I, I took great pride in feeling like that I did good patient-centered care, but I never knew that I could do even better if I actually took a bigger picture look, so that in not just looking at what I was doing at the patient to you know doctor to patient level, but actually sit back and start looking at okay. So who comes to this practice? What conditions do they have? How do we manage those things? Do we have a system for preventive healthcare? And that's that big population management block that I know still for a lot of practices isn't a focus because for very good reason, as GPs, most of the time we're taken up with doing that patient care that's face-to-face, it's the real clinical work, and we don't actually have time to draw breath to even think about, what the bigger picture might look like. Whereas all of this research is saying, well, actually, if you want to be in a practice that does better, you need somebody who's doing that. It might not need to be the GP who's seeing the patients. It can be somebody else looking back behind and going, oh, hey, did you realize that we actually have, you know, 50% of our patients actually have a mental illness. So that might mean that we need to actually look at, Different systems of care, so we can make sure that everybody's needs are addressed, because that's really heavy work, and we might need to get everybody's, you know, professional learning up to scratch, so everybody's a level two, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know, sort of taking a different um, aspect. The next thing was actually about continuity of care, and again, this is a uh, that that sort of two edged dilemma thing, in, in the Australian setting where we don't have the impanelment patient registration but we do recognise strongly that continuity of care is aligned with better health outcomes yet you know what what does that look like when patients can go anywhere and that's very much the australian ethos you know that that we we're, we're very proud of the fact that you know if i don't like the doctor i've just seen i can go down the road and get a second opinion without any problem and I can choose to go into this you know the the doctor across the the road from me at work when I'm at work and I can go somewhere else and we don't want to change that but how do we build in again more of an under you know an understanding from patients as well as doctors that actually continuity of care means that health outcomes and maybe the quality of care can be better because we can sort of follow up a little bit more um, easily The next one is about prompt access, so being able to ensure that when patients need care that they can access it in the right place, the right time from the right person. And then the final two are about comprehensiveness of the care that we actually provide in the practice so that it's a, you know, as a GP, again we take pride in the fact that we can do everything and so it's about making sure that we we cover that off whether we do it or we get someone else to do it but we make sure it's it's done we're holistic totally all of patient care and future proofing is the is that final last block which is being able to say okay how can I make sure that I'm actually taking into account what's changing the environment out there so for us as Australian GPs it's about going okay there's these conversations about being paid in different ways. We're being told that there is no more coming to Medicare. And if so, if there's no more coming to Medicare, what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to change the way we're paid? If they're going to change the way we're paid, do I want that to happen? If I, you know, do or I don't I? I mean, you know, isn't the fee for service what we, we're we on about? And so how do I cope with the thought that the government's actually saying that they're going to maybe change it so I'm going to get more of a lump some payment um and what does that mean to me as an employee gp as well as a practice owner maybe
0: so i guess a lot of the concern that when people talk about quality and and outcome measures and and changes to payments is you know where the research is done and you know like you said a lot of the research is coming out of the us
1: and than- US and UK, and they both have this patient registration, which we don't have.
0: Yeah, and so then the. could you comment on the difference between the UK system, the US system, and like how their research would be
1: translatable
0: compared to what we do here in Australia?
1: Well, I mean, at the end of the day, the, when we look at our patient outcomes, what we do is we define down to the patient population that we could call our own patients okay so so that's where the you know like in the uk they have this distinct advantage where you have one patient file that travels with you your entire life there is not you know potentially little pieces of paper in 20 other practices that have seen you at some time that might actually really add value to you We don't know, but in the UK, it's just one file and it's all there. And so they very much are able to look at one's patient's files and be able to say, you know, what's happening and what interventions may or may not make a difference, whereas we've not had that ability in the Australian setting. But as I said, going back to what we we use the RACGP definition of continuity of care is to say, well, as a general practice, if I see a patient at least three t- three times in two years, then I can be pretty sure that they regard this practice as the practice that is their home. At, l- at least, you know, we've got some responsibility for their care. And so that's the data I've then got access to look at. So that's where our constraint is. In the American setting, it's slightly different from the UK in that although they have patient registration and you're, you're looked after within one system, it's all, you know, one insurer or whatever, you can move fairly easily between those systems and your re- medical records don't actually necessarily follow you or go through. So they have the same difficulties of, I think, siloed care and communication of what's happened in one versus another. Um, But when you're actually being looked after for a condition at one time, that's the one place that you do get looked after and depends on how long you've been there. So those are, you know, the differences in the systems. And I I think that you can't really say that we can't learn from what they do. What you can say is that we have more difficulty being able to control for that continuity of care problem. But it doesn't stop us being able to have those conversations with our patients and be able to still offer them care that looks like that without us being tied down to the systems that are in the UK and the US. At least we know when we look at that. So, I mean, I think the health outcomes that we have in Australia are ridiculously good um, given our model, our current model of care, and we're you know we we track just behind the UK and. Interestingly, you know, doctors would prefer to work in the Australian system any day than they would with the UK. So again, it's about balancing Well, you know, what are the wins, what are the disadvantages, etc. But, you know, it's like anything, I don't think you can throw the baby out with the bathwater just because they have a slightly different model of care. Mm.
0: Before we get into how it would impact financially on practices and what, what the future is, why don't we start with let's say I'm a an employee GP or a contractor GP and I want to improve or look at the, the quality of care that I'm delivering, what are some practical strategies that I can start with to look into that?
1: Well, that's going to very much depend upon the software that you're using and whether your practice has some tools to be able to do those sorts of reporting for you. So let's say look at best practice. So in best practice, you yourself can do some searches in the um, the software. There's a search engine in the best practice software, so you can start pulling out data about your the patients that you've seen, and you know over what. Time frame with different diagnoses or with certain medications, so you can sort of go, oh, how how good am I at getting X, Y, or Z? And you can do some fairly basic searches in your own um, software, but that can be fairly onerous and take a bit of time. So it's really good if the practice that you're working in has actually got some of the the bigger, more powerful data extraction tools operating, so that they can generate the questions and give you a bit more understanding. So, for instance, there's one called PenCat. And Pencat pulls out all of the information about the practice. And then once you've done, pulled out a sort of a um, snapshot, you can then interrogate it. So, for instance, I can do a download and then I can pull out and find out exactly how many patients that my practice is actually seeing and who they regard as being active. We have two lots of active in when we start looking at the interrogating of the the data one is anyone who's been in the practice for the last three years because you know there's a lot of women in particular who might come every two to three years to have their pap smear but don't have to come any other time so you don't want to miss out on them more go down to the rscgp definition so i have two numbers so we have effectively ten thousand patients on our database who are active and then we've got just under 7,000 who are active according to the RACGP. And then with that, I can see how many are men, how many are uh, women, I can have a look and see how many are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have been identified. I can actually start looking at what I call the sort of the quality data metrics. And this is the bit that starts getting sort of, you know, people a little bit tetchy about it because if you call them quality metrics, you know, is that what we're going to be measured against or what does it mean but the quality metrics are so for instance of my active patients how many of them have had a blood pressure done in the last 12 months how many of them have been weighed had a waist circumference um, had a height how many of them have an allergy you know either not known or recorded against their name have they had their ethnicity identified have you know all of those sorts of things so you can sort of have a little snapshot picture and say how good are we as a practice of identifying that and so you could say do a little report that says okay at the moment 30% of the patients in your practice don't have a smoking history 35 don't have an alcohol you've got only 4% of the patients in your practice that have had a waist circumference measured so you can start to sort of go, oh, okay, there's things that we can easily do better, and by doing those things, we might actually get a better understanding about the patient. So for me, as an individual, and this is where it gets to as, a you know, an employee, I use a little tool called um, doctor's control panel, which as I see a patient, pulls out a whole lot of those same metrics and does a green, orange, red traffic light and tells me that it's been more than 12 months since I asked them about their smoking for instance and so every patient that I see I have this little reminder about oh that's right I just need to make sure that your file is up to date just to be sure are you still not smoking or have you started smoking again are you still drinking you know twice a week Blah, blah, you know, so and has anything changed in your family history? And it's interesting because before I started doing that, there was this sort of, I don't know, I if the if the data field field was filled, there was sort of a sense, oh well, I've asked that question and I don't need to go there again. But once I've started asking it really regularly, it's amazing how often things change. You know, the family history has changed because mum or dad has just died or some, the sister has developed breast cancer and you start then bringing out a picture of things that we need to start identifying as a risk for this particular patient and or, you know, they've started smoking again and I had no idea. Um, Or they're actually got a risky um, alcohol drinking pattern that again, if I hadn't asked at that point in time, because I was just updating the
2: file, I would would have missed completely because it wasn't part of the conversation. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I use um, medical director, not best practice. But those items only work if they're actually written in the right places. They don't work for free text. So if you're doing a blood pressure, you actually need to put it in the blood pressure section. It won't pick up if you've done a blood pressure and just free texted it into your notes.
1: Thank you, Beck absolutely perfect point at this point in time yes none of that data matters if you don't put it into the right place okay so there's no, even if you have taken a beautiful history that, have, that records all of that but it's free text into the history notation and you haven't put it into any of those allocated data spots you, it will never be able to be searched for and found so it needs to be put in the right spot at the right each time so that then you can go and get a record and pull it out
0: and I guess that's where it starts to become or seen as a barrier for a lot of clinicians where a patient will come in and you know they might um, their presenting issue might be that they are disclosing you know a sexual assault or domestic violence or um, something which requires a lot of attention to care and you know that whole time will be taken up with the patient itself. And there's all this other stuff in the background that they know that they should be doing yet don't necessarily have the time to do.
1: Yeah, but that's when it's, it's it's that whole thing about patient-centered care, isn't it? It's like in that particular context, then obviously it's not okay. Having said that, there's certainly going to be certain questions that you should be asking that are really relevant to that scenario, but you don't need to take their blood pressure, you know, unless they've, Disclose that they've taken some drugs or something like that I mean you 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 need to tailor it but it's it's about the thing that there's usually opportunities for a lot of other consultations where you can just tidy it up yes and put it in and the more you do that it I mean it doesn't have to happen every consultation but the better you do it the richer the file and the better picture you've got and certainly handing over, you know, we're a teaching practice and so for the registrars it's so much easier to open up a file and have that really full sort of photograph, so to speak, of the patient, you know, seeing what their blood pressures are like, what their weights are, um, what their family history is and so they can ask a patient in from the waiting room already having a bit of a feel for, you know, what, what their sort of health profile is, so to speak.
0: Yeah, so we've got the the rollover information that's entry of data in order to get exit of data that you can then utilise in terms of, you know, you might have a specific question. I had to do a clinical audit for my Level 2 training, uh, focused psychological skills training. It was really interesting because one of the audit points was how many of my depressed patients did I prescribe SSRIs for or for the people that I prescribed SSRIs for how many did I document their alcohol intake and that was a really useful tool for me because now what I've done is I've added to my autofills for mental health care plan reviews checking their drug and alcohol intake and the so that can be a really useful way of kind of putting things into place so that it makes your job easier over time. Yep. And I guess when I hear you talk about, you know, starting up Pink cat, finding something new, it can seem really overwhelming. But a, a really nice way to start is to have a framework or develop a framework about who your patients are and what kind of problems that they are presenting with and start with those ones. And then perhaps as a practice or a clinician looking at what what you would like to do in those consultations and and auditing that then creating ways that you can make it easy for yourself to do
1: absolutely and it needs to be little things you know it's the 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 bigger the problem then the less likely you are to you, you just to get completely overwhelmed and one of the big things about quality improvement work is it's about you know having a bigger goal so like you might have a big goal of saying i want to actually you know, make a difference about identifying high-risk cardiovascular disease patients and actually implementing the, the sort of the recommended treatment protocols for them, okay? So that's your big picture. And so then you actually go, well, okay, well, can we actually even identify who is high-risk? And so you start doing those searches and then you just do a little bit at a time. So, for instance, you go, okay, we're actually, you know, we're not measuring their blood pressures, so you have a project that's actually on making sure that it, when everybody comes in, particularly those particular patients, that they just get their blood pressure done. Or you might get the nurses in the waiting room to start a program of weighing um, patients, doing their waist circumferences, et cetera, before they see the doctor, so that you start actually getting all this data in that wasn't there before. Or you might do a what, what I call a PDSA. You do a program of saying, okay, this month, everybody let's tighten up on family histories let's go make it a project that if you've got a chance doesn't have to be every patient but if you've got a chance just say I'm just you know we've got a project we're just making sure that everybody's family history is up to date can I just check is this this correct or is there anything new we need to add and if you do it as an all of practice project you know those sorts of things it's just but if you start saying now you've got to do this 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 and this everybody goes uh, back off I'm out. Not gonna do it.
0: And I guess that's what what is coming up in terms of financial reward. And when I listen to you talk, I I'm reminded about how awesome it is when my diabetic patients or my elderly patients come in for health assessments, how useful it is for our assistant staff to take a lot of that history and update a lot of the record. Uh, for us before we're seeing them for a different reason and so um to me listening to you talking about you know analyzing data looking at what we can be doing better for our patients and then who's going to do that well it would be great if you've got staff that are dedicated to you know seeing your patients before you are and then if that payment is going to the practice to facilitate that to happen in terms of staffing then I think that's a really good idea the the difficulty is then how do you negotiate and it's probably useful for you to talk as a practice owner charlotte this this push pull between practitioner payments and practice payments and who gets paid for what quality and and how do we define you know how do we define quality as that the patient you know trusts their gp or that their patient listens feels like the gp listened to them and therefore is more likely to do or be engaged in their
1: therapy. Yeah, look, I, mean, I think you've you've touched on the raw nerve of this whole thing, and why the different payment systems sort of is a little fraught. Because, you know, from my perspective, I get very excited about looking at the data and seeing what we can do better, and thinking about what I call system redesign. You know, so how can we have different people in the practice doing things so that these things actually get done? Because I want the doctors happy. Actually, at this point, I think it's good to sort of talk about the the quadruple aim of, of healthcare because that sort of underpins for me how I sort of think about what we've got to do because, you know, as a practice owner, um, I'm always, what I'm really wanting, and this aligns with this international thing called the quadruple aim for health, primary healthcare, it's about improving the patient experience. So I want them my patients to come to the practice and actually feel like they're listened to, that they are respected and that they receive, you know, the the services that they need and they're, you know, handed on, the clinical handover occurs um, as well as it could do. I mean, you know, we, we can't obviously ensure that they don't get a bad diagnosis, but we can at least make sure that that is handled well. Then, the next one is about improving population health. So again, that goes back to that thing about saying, you know, it's not just about me looking after now the patient in front of me, it's about me understanding that I'm actually responsible for a a bigger number of patients. So for me and my practice, as I said, it's around about 10,000 patients. So if I'm going to do that, I I sort of go, oh, wow, that's a different way of looking things. And I need to do different system care things and plan differently, if I'm actually thinking about that more. The next one is about, it's called reducing costs overall. And this is where it's about saying, well, it's not about reducing the costs to the patient or anything like that. It's about saying that we know that the cost of healthcare is escalating at an unsustainable amount. If we design our primary healthcare systems really well and efficiently, then in fact, we can actually reduce those costs overall because we're not duplicating, you know, they're not going and seeing three different GPs for the same problem because they want a different opinion. They're not going to different um, specialists who are all ordering the same unnecessary tests. We we can actually deliver really comprehensive patient-centered care in one practice that a lot of the time then means they don't need to go to a specialist terribly often and we make sure that they don't have the tests duplicated. And that's going to save us apparently millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it's really worth doing. And then finally, which is the reason I came to this, it's about improving the experience that I have and you have of being the the medical team and being those involved in it. So we don't want to design any different sort of practice systems that you and I just go, oh, I just hate going to work because I hate it when I have to do X, Y, and Z. It takes so much time. And it's, you know, that red tape is just a pain, blah, blah, blah. So we have to be mindful about trying to design systems that you and me as the doctor really enjoy and actually go, this is fun and I really get it. And I really like the fact that I feel I'm making a difference to my patients' health care. And I've got my nurses who are doing all these things alongside of me that are saving me having to do it. And they're going, I really like this. I can see that I'm a really crucial part of the team. And I can see that I'm making a big difference to these patients' health. And the front desk staff. They know that by them organising the recall systems and getting the patients in and being efficient and communicating well and being respectful that all of those health outcomes are being achieved and they also really like it because the culture of the place is a place that they want to work in. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: And I think we could probably talk for a long time on quality. So have you got any questions, Beck? that maybe we could go over in a future podcast because we're kind of getting towards end time or things that you would like to cover in future podcasts on on quality charlotte and perhaps maybe you know more practical approaches or something you would like to cover that we can do a series on
1: yeah look I, i i mean sorry beck i'll let you have a word in a moment i think that we can I think it'd be really good looking at the ways in which you can, what I call, design the care in your practice around your patient population and and how you can make that enjoyable and, and earn more money for, you know, you as a bottom line, which is really important, but that it's not just about earning more money. It is actually aligned to um, designing the care around your, pa- your particular patients um, in your practice, their needs, and then looking at, actually
2: achieving quality outcomes. And I guess I'm really interested in that practical stuff as well. But my question that I've written down from a while ago is, from the outside perspective, and I guess both from the patient and from the contractor GP, how do you know if that practice is a quality practice? What questions are you asking? What are you actually looking for from the outside rather than from the inside to know that that practice is one you want to be working at or taking yourself and your family to? Oh, that that
1: would be good. I think that would be a really nice a separate one because we can look at, because there's these measures now that are being used quite a lot and New South Wales Health is rolling out in particular called patient-related outcome measures. And so I think some of that then I think talks about what that might look like. And then there's also the patient evaluation measures. So you've got both the patient outcomes and the patient evaluations. And I think when we look at both of those, some of that... very much relates into what um, the high quality practices will have high generally speaking higher measures on those scores.
0: Excellent. So why don't we arrange for the next series of quality and general practice to be going over practical strategies to design or improve the care of the patients for the practitioner? And then the one after that we could do the one the quality one after that we could do is looking at the patient experience and how does someone from the outside, not inside the practice, know if it's a quality practice? And perhaps we could get some some guests on to talk about those things with us as well.
1: Sounds yeah, sounds
2: like a great idea.
0: Cool. So should we talk about our resource of the week?
2: I'll jump in because I have a recent one from this week which is a registrar resource but I think it's actually very valuable for anybody who is in a training practice and that was the um, KFP public exam report for this terms exam was released this week and they're fairly new they've only been around for the last few years but what they are is they are on the RECGP website and they go through Um, either for the AKT a summary of the questions or for the KFP through each of the questions with essentially um, first of all what the pass mark was, um, what percentage of people sitting passed and a few other similar questions along the lines of who sat the pre-exam and passed, um, how many attempts have taken for people to pass. Um, But for the question base, you get an idea of what the STEM was, so what the topics were that were asked, and what the expectations of the registrar to know um, what they were asked to do, which is actually a really nice way for the registrars to be able to benchmark what their knowledge levels should be and also be aware of what types of questions are being asked. That Previously to, I think it was 2016, this wasn't able to be done. So... It's a nice, good new initiative from the RACGP and one that I found registrars really enjoy. Great. I'll, I'll share the
1: one that I actually talked about during the um, the chat, which is the doctor's control panel.
0: Did you talk about that resource last week?
1: I could do top bar if um, we need another one.
0: Yes, do, because uh, when I spoke to my practice manager about doctor's control panel, she investigated it and it needed a subscription whereas we already had access to Top Bar through our PenCat subscription.
1: So Top Bar is a really great tool. As you've um, mentioned, it's actually linked to having PenCat. So if your practice has got PenCat, then you generally can um, have a subscription as part of that to Top Bar. Each doctor needs to have a separate login, and it is a sort of what I call a point of care decision making tool. So it's something that you use each day as you're seeing patients. It's really great for the front desk staff and the nurses as well, though, because it's sort of got a, an aspect of it that um, highlights data that's missing from each of the individual patients. So the nurse can have a look in the waiting room and see that there's a, you know a number of patients that might benefit from being called in while they're waiting to see the doctor to sort of have extra bits of information added to their record or um you know blood pressures or urines collected that sort of thing but for me as a doctor what i really like is one of the tools on it which is called health tracker and that's a cardiovascular risk assessment tool and it's great because it's really very visual it's got a dial-in sort of tool so you can show the difference in doing certain things in that sort of consultation so if we manage your blood pressure better, let's see how your cardiovascular risk falls, Um, if you stop smoking, let's see the difference, if you lose some weight, those sorts of things, as well as having some extra tools about diet and lifestyle. So from my perspective, that whole sort of aspect of adding value to the conversation about managing risk, it's a really great tool.
0: My resource of the week is the handbook of non-drug interventions i came upon the handy section which is available on the RCGP website and tip for registrars for sitting exams it would be a really useful place to look because it's got lots of evidence based non-drug interventions on there i recently found it this week because i was teaching the registrars on rational prescribing and deprescribing And we got onto the subject of benzodiazepines and sleep. And so I was able to show them the wealth of evidence for non-drug interventions on improving sleep in adults. And I really noticed that the handy section of that website has gone gangbusters and there's so many resources there that I'm yet to kind of have a look into and see if I can incorporate more in my
2: clinical practice. Hmm. Okay,
1: sounds like something that's coming my way too. Thank you. Mm.
0: Sorry, I didn't know if you could hear, but Sam was, um, was unpacking
1: the fridge. <laughs> <But> <laughs> As you do. I do not
0: know if you could hear it in the background. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll let you guys go. It's 5.30 on a Friday and we'll catch up again next time.